The Edge is copyright 2006 by Scott Wittenberg. To learn more about this and other novels by the author, please visit scottwittenberg.com. And be sure to check out The Mayday Murders, another free podcast currently available by Scott Wittenberg. Friday, Chapter 1 Another train roared by. Adam wanted to put his hands over his ears, but long ago realized that this gesture did little good in stifling the deafening assault. Instead, he just shook his head in reluctant defeat and stared up contemptuously at the old rusted trestle before making his way through the congested traffic. Another New York City rush hour was at its peak. As he neared the other side of the busy intersection, Adam began thinking of his general contempt for this nondescript Queens neighborhood. Its residents, mostly Greek-Americans, seemed incredibly mundane and particularly out of sync with the rest of the modern world. It was almost as if they regretted being here in the first place, and would much rather be back in their native country living more traditional lives instead of eking out an existence in this American melting pot. With the possible exception of the successful restaurant owners, Adam decided, the remainder of their less fortunate brethren probably felt they had been forsaken by the promised land and the great American dream. In addition to the rather bleak general atmosphere created by these seemingly misplaced souls was the omnipresent noise it had to be contended with. As if the subway train that clattered over the very street on which Adam lived weren't enough, there was the incessant cacophony of traffic that flowed mercilessly along the major arteries, the junction barely half a block away from his apartment building. Among these thoroughfares were the Grand Central Parkway, Astoria Boulevard, and 31st Street. The Triborough Bridge, linking the boroughs of Queens, Manhattan, and the Bronx together, was nearby as well, making its vital contribution to motorists en route to Long Island and neither LaGuardia or Kennedy airports. Finally, to top it all off, was the airport itself. LaGuardia, although actually located in Flushing, may just as well have been in Adams' backyard. The seemingly endless squadrons of commercial airlines, in their haste to get airborne and away from this god-awful hellhole of racket, seemed at their most intense as they whined and thundered their way over Astoria, to much quieter destinations, no doubt. Adam ascended the steps to his apartment building and felt regret for not bringing back the window air conditioner his father had offered him during his most recent trip to Ohio. Spring was in its third week, and he knew that with the heat and humidity of another New York summer looming nearer every day, he would have to set on the old window fan again, and what little relief it would afford. This, of course, meant that with the windows wide open, there would be virtually no escape from the noise. He had only himself to blame for this foolish oversight. He swung open the heavy metal door and peeked through the grill of his mailbox in the foyer. Inside was a single piece of mail, a manila envelope that would no doubt be the phone bill. Having retrieved his mail, he opened the inner door and entered the hallway. The interior walls of this old four-story building were comprised of galvanized metal half the way up to the ceiling and painted an ugly shade of hideous bright blue. The paint was peeling badly, and as he walked the length of the hall to the staircase, Adam wondered if he would be around long enough to see a fresh coat of paint applied to this ancient relic of a building. This, he knew, would certainly be too much to hope for, as he considered the lock on the door he had just gone through, which hadn't been operable in the entire time he had resided here. He reached the door to his second-story apartment and entered. As he closed and locked the door behind him, he observed his cat waiting there to greet him as she always did whenever he returned home from work. 
Adam knelt down and petted her briefly before making his way through the cluttered hallway to the kitchen. Habitually, he took out a glass from the cupboard and filled it with orange juice, sat down at the kitchen table, and lit up a cigarette. The apartment was small, even by New York's incredibly tight standards, comprised of three rooms in addition to the minuscule bathroom that was just that. A tub, a toilet, and not even room enough for a sink. The kitchen, the largest of the rooms, was situated in the center of the flat. Adam had eventually realized that it would have to double as a living room, since the other two rooms were hardly large enough to entertain guests, however rare that occasion might be. In an effort to make it more livable, he had done a lot of work to enhance its function and atmosphere. First he had painted it bone white, concealing the former gaudy wallpaper with its ridiculous scheme of spice jars and coffee grinders. Then he had hung several of his favorite photographs over two adjacent walls, as well as a couple of posters he had purchased. Finally, he had covered the institution-like black-and-white linoleum with wall-to-wall -wall carpet. With the greatly improved acoustics of the room, he had decided to add a pair of stereo speakers to the decor as well. Despite all of this effort in interior decorating, Adam realized that the room was, and always would be, just what it was, a kitchen. To the left of the kitchen was the bedroom, the larger of the two remaining rooms. Its space was virtually taken up by a sofa bed, which always remained open, a television, and a second pair of stereo speakers. Between the sofa bed and the wall was just enough room for a small nightstand that was now littered with books, magazines, and various music trade papers. Amidst the rubble was a telephone and clock radio. A wielding spider plant hung in front of the window on the far side of the room, adding a little relief to the stark decor. The remaining room was what Adam referred to as his studio. A long dresser supported an array of recording equipment, including a four-track reel-to-reel tape deck and a mixing console. Adjacent to this was a shelf upon which sat a stereo system and cassette deck, as well as stacks of albums and a library of recorded tapes. Against the wall, beside an oversized closet, rested several guitars, including an acoustic six-string, an electric six-string, and a Hofner bass. This room was carpeted as well, and also painted white. Adam took a long drag off his cigarette and stared out the kitchen window. The view outside, as if in compliance with everything else in his life, was drab and depressing. He could see the tops of a few trees above the ugly neighboring building, their freshly adorned leafy branches blowing in the gathering wind. The building itself was constructed of the same dirty brown masonry typical of most of the apartment buildings in Astoria, and it all but obstructed from view anything beyond it. The sky was visible, however, and it was a hazy shade of magenta now, the resultant smog moving eastward from the city. For the past couple of months, Adam had come home from work and sat, just as he sat there now, in a seemingly endless and fruitless effort to sort out what was wrong with his life, and what, if anything, he could do to change it. Adam loved New York, that much he was sure of. He loved its fast pace as well as its diversity, and he had surprised himself at how quickly he had settled into this new environment barely over two years ago. He felt as if he had been set free from the seemingly dead-end existence he had been experiencing in southern Ohio, as if a tremendous burden had been taken off his shoulders. He had no regrets of his former life in Ohio, for it had actually been quite full and even eventful, all things considered, but after twenty-nine years in his small Midwest hometown, he had begun feeling an intense need to grow, to somehow finally do something realistic to make his dreams come true. He simply had to get out of there. 
He was a dreamer and an idealist. He had always been both of these for as long as he could remember. He was also stubborn and persevering, but thank God he was also realistic. The older he got, the more it became apparent to him that these wonderful qualities that had been bestowed upon him since birth, no doubt there is something to be said for astrology, meant only one thing, trouble, big trouble. The dream began crystallizing when Adam was in the sixth grade. He would never forget that Sunday night when he, like nearly every other kid in America, was glued to the television set, waiting for the Beatles to appear on Ed Sullivan. From the moment he laid eyes on them, heard their incredible music, and saw all of those girls go absolutely hysterical over them, Adam knew exactly what he wanted to be when he grew up. And nothing in God's creation was going to stop him. The seed had been planted. Adam got his first guitar that same year on his thirteenth birthday. He'd never forget that first guitar. His father bought it for him at a pawn shop in Columbus, and it had been an absolute bitch to play. The strings on the old acoustic were so far from the frets that his fingers literally bled after twenty minutes or so of trying to strum a successful G major chord on the thing. But he persevered. In time, he learned how to play most of the popular chords, and Sue began learning how to play Beatles songs by ear off the 45s. He loved it. Next came the band scene, and by the time he had graduated from high school, Adam had been in several different rock and roll bands. But of course, he was still nowhere. Then came college. It was either Vietnam or college, so Adam happily opted for the latter. He could never make it in music fighting a stupid war in Asia anyway. It was during his first two years in college that he started writing songs, and by his junior year he had made his ultimate decision. He would quit school and pursue, exclusively, a career in music. Well, not exactly exclusively. He was much too realistic for that. He would get a job so he could buy some new equipment, etc., and play music the rest of the time. Although he formed and played with several fairly successful bands in the years that followed, Adam finally realized that only by working full-time at music could he ever expect to become successful. So he decided to quit his job in a sort of final do-or-die effort. He subsequently formed a band that had enormous potential. So much potential that the other members eventually followed Adam's suit and gave up their jobs as well. They began rehearsing and recording full-time in Adam's basement studio and eventually became touring several showcase clubs throughout the Midwest. They soon discovered, however, that the Midwest was not yet prepared to accept their progressive style of music, and the frustrations among the band members began to mount. Time soon caught up with Adam, and he realized that he would have to give up his apartment if something didn't break for the group soon, since his income wasn't substantial enough to pay the rent. In one final mad attempt to keep the band together, he began selling his equipment to make ends meet and to keep the apartment. Eventually, though, he ran out of things he was willing to sell and the band was forced to break up as a result of the mounting tensions and the mutual lack of funds. The day that Adam moved back in with his parents had been one of the lowest points of his entire life. He felt as if he had been beaten by the system, and for the first time began considering what his parents had been telling him all along. The playing music was all fine and dandy, but making a living at it was another thing. But Adam was stubborn and wasn't about to admit defeat yet. Although totally at odds at what his next move would be, he was nevertheless absolutely sure of one thing. He needed to get out of Ohio, and the sooner, the better. It was ironic how fate entered the picture a short time later and gave Adam a destination to pursue. 
An old friend of his, who had since moved to New York City years before, called him the morning after John Lennon had been shot and murdered. His friend, like Adam, had also been an ardent Beatle fan from the beginning, and had called in regard to Lennon's tragic death. They both expressed their mutual shock and sorrow, as well as the sad state of the world in general. Later, during the conversation, his friend suggested that Adam come up and visit him upon hearing of his frustrating plight in Ohio. Suddenly, a light came on in Adam's head. Why hadn't he thought of it before? He would move to New York. He had been there a few times before and had always loved it, though during his visits he had never actually considered himself becoming a resident there. Now it seemed totally logical to him. He knew that the music scene was tremendous there, and he could start a band and begin taking the bull by the horns, so to speak. Of course he would have to get a job in the meantime, and his friend assured him that that would be easy enough, although finding an apartment would most likely be considerably more difficult. Elated at the new prospect, Adam told his friend that he would be up as soon as he could get enough money together. He began making plans for the trip, and within a couple of weeks after the holidays, he had enough money saved up to do it. He hastily loaded up his car with a few belongings and took off to a new city and a new life. Throughout the thirteen-hour drive there, Adam was full of anticipation and optimism. As he sped through the mountains of Pennsylvania, he discovered that for the first time in what seemed like ages, he had some sort of peace of mind and a bright outlook for the future. He didn't for a moment think of his past and the life he was leaving behind. All he now cared about was the long, winding road ahead of him and what life had in store for him at the end of that road. When he finally approached that famous skyline of Manhattan and began making his way through the Lincoln Tunnel, Adam felt his heart racing madly in his chest and for a moment thought he might literally die from exhilaration before he ever reached the other side. Later, after settling into his friend's Upper East Side apartment, Adam began the task of finding employment. On one lucky day, only two weeks later, he found a job and signed the lease to this apartment. He couldn't believe his good fortune, and was convinced that fate was certainly in his favor. He had truly made the right move. And now, two years later, Adam began reflecting on his life since he had moved to New York. He thought back to the very early days and remembered how enthusiastic and energetic he had been. Each day had seemed to open the door to a brand new adventure, and now, in retrospect, he likened himself to a small child opening his presents on Christmas morning, greedily tearing off the wrapping paper in anticipation of what new surprise awaited him inside. He remembered the weekends especially, and the utter fascination of driving his car over the 59th Street Bridge on Friday nights and taking in that awesome, beautiful skyline. He had become obsessed with the spectacle, and as he would drive slowly along, Angry motorists would honk their horns in typical New York impatience and persistence, forcing him to speed up, or else. He felt as though it just couldn't last forever, that skyline, and he wanted to be among the last few to see it, should it suddenly disappear for some reason. He recalled his sheer amazement of the city's subway system. He wondered how such old graffitied shells of steel survived the rush hour transporting literally millions of commuters to their destinations, all within the span of a couple of hours. And then he would think of them performing the service twice a day, no less, and five days a week, not to mention the regular service 24 hours a day. Granted, the trains were late much of the time, and downright filthy all the time. But wasn't it amazing that the whole concept actually worked? He thought it incredible that people could take such a miraculous thing for granted as they did. 
but he very soon discovered that New Yorkers seemed to take everything for granted, and Adam felt for sure that they simply didn't realize just how good they had it. All they needed, he would muse, was to spend a few days in southern Ohio. Then they would come to their senses. He liked New Yorkers, though, and he eventually began to realize that there were legitimate reasons for their coldness and eccentricity. Besides the fact that New York was in fact their hometown, and no matter how great it was, one always took his hometown for granted, there was a general feeling of perpetual impatience to sour everyone's attitude. To be confronted with long lines and endless waiting at virtually every venue of everyday life was enough to grate on anyone's nerves, and thus, anyone's potential for cordiality. In spite of his laid-back Midwest background, Adam eventually found himself becoming the same as the natives, and chalked it all up to a given that went along with the city. After all, he had decided, one had to expect to pay some dues for the privilege of living in the Big Apple. With this worldly attitude established, he had slowly but surely learned to take all the everyday nuisances with the proverbial grain of salt. When he had first moved to New York, Adam had had a considerable amount of free time to observe his new environment, since his only commitment had been his forty-hour-a-week job as a sales clerk. Eventually, though, he had found himself becoming restless and willing to pursue his real purpose for being there. He knew virtually no one in New York, save for his friend from his hometown, and he wasn't just sure how to go about locating musicians wanting to form a band. He picked up a village voice and was impressed with the multitude of one-ads in the musician classifieds, and decided to run his own. He ran the ad for two weeks and had been amazed at the tremendous response he had received. He would listen carefully to each prospective caller, trying to discern if he was the right person to fit into his band-to-be. After taking calls for a week, he had come up with a respectable list of names and telephone numbers, so he began booking rehearsal time in studios to hold auditions. After several auditions and frustrations, he finally felt he had found the right members, just as the ad was waning in its second week. The musicians had similar musical roots to his own, and they seemed easy enough to get along with, which was about all he could hope for at that stage of the game. The band began practicing furiously, working up the original songs that Adam would play for them on his cassette demos. Eventually, they had two sets of songs worked up, and they had landed their first gig in a small club in New Jersey. Although they had been somewhat stiff and nervous, which was to be expected, the audience's reaction had been very encouraging. Later that night after the performance, Adam had decided his group could very well go somewhere, with a lot of hard work and an equal amount of good luck. Adam soon found himself very busy between working his regular job and rehearsing with the band. Although he didn't particularly like his sales clerk job, he realized it was necessary and began enjoying the fact that he was so busy. He socialized very little, and with the exception of occasional weekend nights at the downtown clubs, rarely went out at all. When he did have free time, he spent it for the most part writing new songs. The band eventually acquired a manager who had considerable connections with many of the city's showcase clubs. This was a great boost, and soon they were playing gigs with increasing regularity. As time went on, their stage show got tighter, and their repertoire of original songs became greater and more tailored to the image they were trying to project. They had finally become a unit, and a damn good unit at that. But it simply wasn't enough. After nearly two years of hard work, dedication, and sacrifice, they seemed to have reached the apex of their career as a band. They had reached a sort of plateau, and were virtually stuck there with nowhere else to go, unless some miracle was to happen. The Big Break Theory. This, Adam knew, wasn't likely to happen. The music scene was changing drastically, and unfortunately for the worst. 
Videos were becoming the medium all of a sudden, and the concept of playing live in showcase clubs and being discovered by visiting record company scouts had all but fallen by the wayside. As a result of this sudden interest in video as a format for promoting and breaking new groups, not only was the showcase club becoming extinct, but the quality of music itself was suffering in the process. Record companies were looking for video stars now, not necessarily innovative and talented rock music bands. The whole thing was disillusioning, if not somewhat depressing to Adam. But it was certainly real. Adam lit up a cigarette. As he thought back to his early days in New York, he realized he had indeed been very happy. He had been confronted with challenges and met them head-on. Everything was so fresh and new. But now, he thought, everything had gotten stale. Although his band still plugged on, being the diehards that they were, the fact remained the same. They were getting nowhere fast and they were certainly doomed. Now, as much as he hated to admit it to himself, he was practically in the same miserable trap he had been back in Ohio, the only difference being that now he was in New York. He settled back in his chair and continued staring out the window. Dusk was falling, and he could hear the rumble and clatter of a subway train echoing off the neighboring buildings as he focused his eyes on an imaginary point in the darkening sky. He began thinking out loud. What's wrong with me? Why don't I still have the same old energy and enthusiasm I used to have? I'm getting too old for all of this. That's what it is. I know the stars say I'm supposed to be a late bloomer, but this is ridiculous. I've been chasing the same rainbow for as long as I can remember, and I still have absolutely nothing to show for it. Why doesn't something happen? He took a deep drag off his cigarette. The heel of his shoes started tapping the floor nervously, as he continued this now daily ritual of deep soul-searching. Am I feeling sorry for myself? Well, maybe I am, just a little. But I don't really think the world owes me anything, except maybe a little break once in a while, which surely isn't too much to ask. I mean, I do have some talent, and God knows I've certainly paid more than a lion's share of dues throughout this whole illustrious career of mine. So what's the big problem here? He drained the remainder of his tepid orange juice, and a thought came to mind. Maybe I should consider a shrink. That seems to be the big thing up here, and I'm beginning to understand why. No, not for this lad. I've managed this far on my own, thank you, and I'll continue the same way as I always have. Of course, look where my great independence has gotten me thus far. I am now a complete neurotic, and slowly but surely I'm becoming schizoid. My entire life has more or less been a total joke, and you'd think that by now I'd have the common sense to come down to earth and look reality right in the eye. What is wrong with me? He suddenly gazed around the kitchen, as if expecting some divine, mystical answer to his woes to suddenly leap out from out of nowhere. There was no response. But what am I doing? I've always been able to cope with all the setbacks I've had in the past. I know that overnight successes are just fairy tales. Why am I all of a sudden so goddamn weak? Why can't I just shrug it all off, as I always have, and keep right on rolling with the punches? Why? Suddenly the phone rang. He snuffed out his cigarette, headed for the bedroom, and picked up the phone. Hello? Adam, how's it going? It was Joe, guitarist for the band. Oh, okay, Adam replied. You want to go to the city tonight? The spasms are playing at the Ritz, Joe said. Oh, hell, I don't know, Adam replied, stalling for an excuse to get out of this. 
I'll probably just stay in and try to do some writing for a change. I haven't come up with a decent song in months, he finally said. Ah, oh, come on, Joe insisted. It's Friday night and there'll be women all over the place just waiting for us. Remember those babes at our last gig? They'll be there for sure. I know it's Friday night, but I'm beat. This damn job is killing me. Besides, I really should try and come up with a new tune for us to work up. Our set is getting a bit stale, you know. Well, all right, but if you change your mind, just give me a ring. I'm on my fifth rum and coke and raring to go score some lady action. I'll do that. Have a good night, Joe, Adam said, then hung up the phone. Fifth rum and coke? How could Joe start drinking so early, Adam wondered. At least he wasn't an alcoholic. Not yet, anyway. He continued sitting on the edge of the bed, staring at the phone. How many times have I gone through this charade with Joe? Every weekend he calls, and I always make up some lame excuse not to go out. Christ, I haven't been out in the town in two months. Maybe if I started going out again, I could get all this off my mind. No, it wouldn't do any good. All we talk about is the band when we get together, and that's the last thing I want to do right now. And of course we spend the rest of the time hustling all of those beautiful women like a couple of old lechers. That just makes things even more frustrating, because most of these girls are either inaccessible or better off left alone. But then, Laura had been an exception. Laura was... Adam was suddenly hit by a wave of intense despair. The mere thought of her name struck a chord that overwhelmed him completely. He took in a deep breath of air, and as if in a trance, slowly made his way back into the kitchen. He sat down and began fumbling with his cigarette lighter as the inevitable memories he had for so long suppressed suddenly resurfaced with a maddening vengeance. Laura! That's what's wrong with me. That's why I'm at my wit's end with everything. Laura! He repeated the name over and over, and each time the mere sound of it seemed to leer at him more and more. Laura! He closed his eyes and hid his face in his hands. He remained that way for several minutes, struggling with all his might to resist the gnawing temptation to cry. But he didn't. Instead, after a few moments, he removed his face from his hands and stared blankly at the ceiling. Why? was all he could say. Adam rose from the chair and swallowed hard. Then, mechanically, he walked into the studio and began thumbing through his cassette tapes. He took his time doing this, carefully reviewing each title as if to somehow get his mind off of everything else in the world. Finally, he selected a tape and placed it in the cassette deck. It was an old album by the birds. He then switched on the power amp and turned up the volume as loud as he dared to without disturbing his neighbors. As the intro to Mr. Tambourine Man oozed out of the speakers, he returned to the kitchen. He glanced at the window and observed that night had fallen. The sky was now clear and he could see the stars just beginning to twinkle out over Long Island. He suddenly felt hungry enough to eat so he began preparing dinner after first feeding the cat. Having eaten and washed the dishes, he took a hot shower and shaved. Feeling refreshed from his shower, he made a strong drink and drained it quickly. After fixing another bourbon and coke, he got dressed and decided to go up on the roof. He picked up the half-empty fifth of Old Crow and remainder of coke and made his way to the door. Locking it behind him, he ascended the steps leading to the fourth floor, then quietly climbed up the remaining flight to the door that opened to the roof. He pushed hard on the large metal door and stepped out. Stealthily, 
He made his way to the front of the building, then stood near the edge and stared out the spectacle before him. To the south, he could see the World Trade Center jutting out seemingly from nowhere. He observed the hundreds of tiny rectangles of light and wondered just how many people were in those two towers now and what important business would keep them there so late in the evening. He marveled at how tiny the surrounding buildings in Lower Manhattan appeared in comparison, and wondered why the city planners had decided to erect the two enormous skyscrapers in such a relatively low-lying area of the skyline. Perhaps for balance, he thought to himself. Adam's eye scanned northward, tracing the imaginary line of the East River. Approaching Midtown, the building suddenly became much taller, and towering above them all was the Empire State Building. It was now illuminated in three tiers of color, red, white, and blue. He knew that these colors were displayed during national holidays or events, but he couldn't think of which one was being observed tonight. A little further to the right was the Chrysler Building, with its illuminated stainless steel top glistening in the sky. Next he observed the Citicorp Building, with its distinctive acute angle wedge-like top. As his eyes moved further north, the scale of the buildings leveled off as he observed the Upper East Side straight ahead and further northward up to the Bronx. In the foreground to this stood the enormously long Triborough Bridge, which was lit up majestically in yellow, orange, and blue, its entrance ramp located a mere few blocks away. Adam stood for several moments, taking in the overall grandeur and magnificence of the Manhattan skyline. Although he had been on this roof countless nights before, he could never imagine the view looking any less beautiful. It held a sort of storybook quality in its beauty, and he always felt grateful and happy that he was in some way a part of it. Whenever he felt the need for reassurance in life's hectic ways in New York, he knew he could always count on this view to bolster his aspirations. He suddenly felt grateful that the magic was still there. He heard a distant roar and looked down below him. He could see the top of the elevated subway that ran directly above 31st Street, and a train was approaching from his left. Adam watched as it clattered by and stopped at the Astoria Boulevard station. As it pulled away, he cursed this rude distraction from his tranquility. He took a drink from his glass and lit up a fresh merit. The roof was fairly well lit by a full moon as he glanced over to the far corner where he and Laura had spent one night together. She had coaxed him into bringing up his guitar and playing for her, and he had been a little hesitant at first. But after a few drinks, he had found himself enjoying the little concert. Laura had listened attentively to him, playing and singing to her, and as the night proceeded, Adam had decided that he was probably the happiest man on earth. He loved her company, and the feeling that he always got whenever she was with him. That feeling grew quickly and steadily as time went on, and at one point he had actually considered the possibility that he was in love with her. He never told her, though, for at the same time, he wasn't sure that he was even capable of being in love with somebody. It was only now that he realized that he had indeed fallen in love. And now it was too late. Adam felt a lump come to his throat. He chased it away with a strong belt of his drink. Slowly, he walked over to the corner of the roof and sat down. The memories nagged at him relentlessly. God, I miss her. If only she was sitting here next to me now, everything would be fine. I wouldn't feel so totally depressed and lost and lonely. Why did she have to end it? And why so suddenly? Christ, how could she do it so easily? As if nothing had ever happened. Did I just imagine that we were the happiest people on earth? Did I just imagine all those beautiful nights together?
talking, drinking, and making love? Did I not sit in this very spot two months ago playing guitar and Laura right here at my side? Tell me, God, is it just my fucking imagination? He suddenly hurled his glass as hard as he could against the brick wall. It shattered into a million pieces and made a sound like gravel as the shards rolled along the incline of the roof. Adam picked up the bottle of bourbon and began gulping the whiskey as fast as he could swallow. Better to be drunk, he thought to himself. He spent the next hour or so drinking, smoking cigarettes, and thinking. Thinking of Laura. Thinking of life and death. As his mind steadily succumbed to the effects of the alcohol, Adam began picturing the whole world as one enormous triangle. At one corner of the triangle sat himself and his entire life, past, present, and future. He conceived himself as being merely a tiny fragment of matter that ate, drank, breathed air, and suffered. He labeled this corner of the triangle existence. At the opposing angle sat the corner he labeled death, the ultimate end to his existence, the only thing that could be counted on to relieve him of his miserable existence. He suddenly realized that it wouldn't be so bad to die. In fact, it would be a blessing. Finally, at the uppermost corner of the triangle was Laura. He saw her as the only alternative to death and existence. She was up there at the top, able to lift him up and away from the straight, dead-end road to death. She could, in essence, convince him that life was so much more than existence, that there was indeed a thing called love in this world to those who were willing to see it. If only she would take him back, he would be sane again, and happy. If only... Adam slammed the bottle down in a sudden fit of rage. He felt very foolish all of a sudden as he pictured himself sitting there whimpering like a baby and feeling sorry for himself. I've got to pull myself together. This is pathetic. I can't start going off the deep end just because some woman dropped me flat on my ass. What's wrong with me anyway? It happened, and now I'm just going to have to accept it and learn to deal with it. That's all. It's not the end of the world, for crying out loud. Hell, I've still got my whole life ahead of me, don't I? At least that's something. My career. That's all that's important now. It's time I get back on track. Briskly, Adam stood up and made his way to the door. He practically ran down the three flights of stairs and realized as he entered his apartment that he felt dangerously dizzy. Deciding that he was finished drinking for the night, he began making a pot of fresh coffee. He waited for the coffee to brew, poured himself a cup, and went into the studio. He eyed his old Gibson acoustic resting against the wall, went over and picked it up. Then he sat down the stool and began strumming it. I really must start writing again. Maybe tonight I'll come up with a good one.